This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining us on the Parenting ADHD Podcast. Today, my guest is Jackie Flynn. She is someone that I have come to know through books and writing, and I've been on her podcast a couple of times, and she just has really great insights into our children and parenting with compassion. And so I'm going to turn it over to Jackie and let her introduce herself a little bit, and we're going to talk about fostering health healthy self-esteem in kids with ADHD. So Hi, th- Penny. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on this show. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Love to and, have um, you here. Oh, thank you. And to introduce myself, I'm Jackie Flynn. I'm a registered play therapist and a licensed mental health counselor here in Florida where I live. And I have a private group practice that i um, I, I love, love, love. I love working with kids and families, and um, I work with some couples. But many of my clients do have ADHD or they have an autism spectrum disorder. So I feel really excited to be on your show and share some of the things that I've learned while working with my clients, but also um, while, you know, just kind of studying this stuff and um, helping teachers and helping parents really kind of get the insights and the skills that they need to not only improve their and their child's quality of life, but get some things that um, really help. And one of the big things I think is self-esteem in our kids. Absolutely especially for kids with ADHD and other what I call invisible disorders. Um, They kind of get a lot of messages that they're bad or broken or different throughout the day, especially at school. And so I feel like it's our job as parents of these special kids to really focus on their self-esteem and their confidence and, um, showing them that they are good at things, that they do have gifts and talents. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, because sometimes life can teach them otherwise, and it can be really hard, especially if you have ADHD or an autism spectrum disorder, because the feedback you get from others is you're not doing this right or getting redirected at school or maybe getting um grades that aren't reflective of what you're truly, um, what you truly know that, um, inattention and hyperactivity gets in the way. So it can really wear you down. So I think that's so, so important to be that positive support in your child's life, but it can be hard sometimes. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're programmed when we grow up as parents, um, 
you know, we we're programmed to expect certain things out of parenthood and expect the certain things out of kids. And, you know, a lot of ADHD symptoms fly in the face of that. And so you have to have a really good understanding of ADHD or autism and how it affects your child very specifically in order to kind of be that soft spot um, for them to land and to not do more damage to their self-esteem ourselves. You know, we have to be really careful of that. Yes. And I I want to um, really mention that it's not to be confused with being soft or being um, really kind of passive with your child. I just had Dr. Temple Grandin on my show, Parenting in the Rain podcast. And one of the things that she credits to her success is how her parent really held her to standards and gave her good structure. So I think that's really important to know that it doesn't mean that you have to be like, um, just kind of let your child, you know, be really nice and let your child get away with anything. It's really giving your child that respect, that structure and the setting them up for success in a way that they can feel those accomplishments and um, really build on that through their lifespan long after they leave our, our household from their childhood homes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The word soft might have been a bad choice of words, but I just meant that, you know, we have to be that compassionate space for them. I think, um, you know, the, the person who really understands them and what they're going through in order to help their self-esteem and their confidence. Yeah, but I do think that word soft applies, especially in the way that we speak with our children, because if we could give them that calm space in their life, and um, I'm going to really kind of mention this throughout the key points of how to raise your child's self-esteem, but be that thermostat, not the thermometer. As they get upset and get escalated, really kind of keep your cool and keep grounded and speak in that soft tone, and that can help them to calm down. I know you did an excellent video on that. Um, I, I can't remember where it's at. I remember you faced it, or you posted it in your mm. Facebook group, and it was online. But um, yes. that softness is so valuable in that respect, I believe. Yeah, and I love that analogy that you just used about being their thermostat and not the thermometer. That's that's a really great analogy and visual for parents to be able to really internalize how to handle those situations. I love that. Yeah, I just I can't take credit for it though, but um, I do use it all the time. I uh, do child parent relationship therapy with my clients. I work with the parents on learning new parenting skills. It's a ten session model, and that I believe is in session two. And I just bought a thermostat. I ordered it on Amazon and a thermometer, and really to use that visual in session of how to respond rather than react. So like the thermostat, you you are the one in control and you're cooling down the environment. Where a thermometer, you're just kind of getting hotter as the room gets hotter. So uh, I didn't create that myself, but it, it's actually helped me with many of my clients, but also on a personal level because I'm a parent as well. So sure. that it's real. You know, it can get really uh, difficult sometimes to keep your cool. So that kind of keeps it in check. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to have to use that too. I love that. So why don't you 
um, go ahead and give us those points that you have that you want to share about how to foster self-esteem in our kids that have ADHD. Well, the first one I'd like to talk about is the importance of looking in your child's eyes. I think we get so busy as parents that we hustle bustle trying to get the house clean, get the laundry clean, get homework done, Mm -hmm. um, get out the door, get home from work, um, turn on the TV to chill out that a lot of times we just kind of passively talk to our kids and we don't actually look them in the eye that much. And when we get down on our children's level and look them in the eye, it can really um, make a big difference. It can set that inner thought about themselves like, I matter, I'm worthy, I'm good enough. It um, definitely is challenging, though, but I'm not talking about sitting down and having an hour-long conversation with them every day. It could even be a 30-second burst of attention, and I know that when that 30-second burst of attention is really implemented, um, the behaviors of uh, really trying to get the parents' attention can really diminish. So I don't know if you've ever been on the phone and then your kids start acting up as soon as you get on the phone. Right. If anybody listening to this has ever had that experience and it's like, oh, this is important. Just be quiet five more minutes. And then you find yourself trying to find something to um, really uh, pacify them until you get off. But something that works much better and has really um, like extra effects too is to kind of if they're mine are now taller than me they're teenagers but if they're little ones you get down on your knees and you tell the person on the phone hold on for a second my my child needs me for a minute and first that really kind of gives a kid that message that hey I am important yeah and you you um, just look at them right in the eyes and and the child parent relationship therapy they say have your nose and your toes to the child so your body facing forward and say I'm on the phone right now, but I really want to hear what you say. Can you give me the short version? And then when I get off, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And then they may talk for like 20 seconds and then you, um, and then you kind of close it up and get back to your conversation. And a lot of times the kids won't even, um, you know, they'll get what they need, um, out of that little burst of attention, but it connects them with their parents and also lets them know, hey, I matter and I, I'm good enough. And those Absolutely. cognitions, yeah, it's so important. Those cognitions really generalize to the rest of their life, right? So if they get the I matter, it goes long past that phone call. It gets, I matter enough to do my homework. I matter enough to take care of my physical health. And it gets embedded in their um, brain for years and years to come. So um, it's, it's really, uh, really valuable just to look your child in the eyes. Plus, it um, lights up a part of their brain, too, that connects that feeling of importance and worthiness. Sure, sure. And so some kids with ADHD and autism don't aren't comfortable looking people in the eye. Yeah. At, at, under that circumstance, what would you suggest? I would say you want to make sure that you respect their comfort level. And I never ever, um, ever recommend for a parent to force a child to look them in the eye. I think that's um, very, um, it, it 
and compassionate, but also it could be damaging to a child because when they're looking away, it, it's serving a purpose for them. Sure. So um, you can still have that nose to toes, but kind of you follow that body language and um, send that message that you're important. But, you know, the, um, the whole thought of you connecting that gaze in those circumstances isn't a deal breaker. It's more of the bigger goal of I um, I care about you. I'm I'm focused on you right now. So you looking at the child, but not demanding that they look back at you. Good. Yeah, it's more about showing them that your attention is on them. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And I, I love Maya Angelou. Um, she has this quote: "I've learned that people will forget what you said." People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So it's it's Absolutely. more about that connection than actually the information that you're giving them. Exactly. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I love her. Love, love, love her. Mm-hmm. And the second one is be a good model. And it can be really difficult like to parent in tough situations and, um, I have uh, just read this really good book, The Whole Parent Child, How to Become a Terrific Parent Even If You Didn't Have One. And I know many of us have had great parents, but still those um, challenges are tough, especially when our kids have some extra challenges such as like impulsivity or hyperactivity or maybe um, uh, non-compliant type of behaviors. So um, really being a good model for them speaks volumes because Kids really do more of what we do than what we tell them to do. And they really, yeah. And when we go through life, when we make mistakes, that's given them that unspoken permission to be human and make mistakes themselves and to regulate their emotions and engage in problem solving themselves because it really provides them with like that real life blueprint of how to live and how to be comfortable when they're not perfect because no one's perfect. Right. I tell parents when they lost their cool with their kids or, you know, reacted in a way that they wish they hadn't, they weren't proud of, I always advise them to sit down with their child and apologize and show them that we're all human and we all make mistakes because that's the best um, teaching outcome for that situation is to say, you know, I, I made a mistake, I got caught up in my emotions, I shouldn't have yelled. I'm very sorry that I yelled. Um, I should have blank, I should have talked to you um, after I calmed down or whatever it may be and just turn it into a teaching moment. But, you know, being a good model also comes back to how you remain calm when your child is explosive or intensely emotional. Um, You know, if you mirror that and give them the same intensity back, then you're giving them that underlying message that that's um, acceptable behavior in that instance. So being a good model and remaining calm usually will diffuse that situation faster and you're teaching your child a better way to handle those situations. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, that's so true. And um, 
Dr. Siegel's book, The Whole Brain Child, he talks about the importance of making a repair with your child, going back and connecting with your child. And that definitely helps to make the repair. But on a larger scale, it gives them that um, permission to make a repair when they have like maybe had an emotional outburst. And it shows them that, hey, you can regulate your emotions and, and come back. And it doesn't cause as big of a parent-child um, uh, gap, too. When when those big episodes happen and we lose our cool, and I know I certainly have before with my kids, and um, when you can come back and apologize, there's some healing done in that moment. And when that's done, it's more likely to embed itself in the safe zone rather than in one of those um, like tough childhood experiences. So it, it can make a big difference to just come back and and model for your children and, and really name the emotions that you were feeling because when you can name an emotion, you can tame it. That's from Dr. Siegel's work too. When they have a word that matches what they're feeling, it uses uh, an entirely different part of the brain and it um, really helps the emotional um, regulation to occur and them to de-escalate. So it may sound like, I felt really angry when I heard this and I responded like this and I wish I would have done this. Mm -hmm. Now I've taken some deep breaths. I've calmed down and I just want you to know I love you and I am so sorry. I'm going to try better next time. Yeah, that's great. It can be tough though. I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of, you know, it's like I just um, heard this term in my couples counseling that, righteously indignant where you feel like you have a right to be angry but mm-hmm. you want to kind of drop that need because that that um really um, demanding to be right can be really expensive for you and your children so i think it's better to be human and and forgiving and connecting in those moments they're so so tender yeah i think a lot of us are have been brought up to think that a parent um, is supposed to be in control, that we're supposed to maintain the control and the power. And that can be really detrimental. I think it's better to, um, you know, look at it from that modeling perspective and showing them that we're human. Yes, yes. And it's really important to recognize the humanness that we do have and that sometimes it's really, really difficult. And it, you know, to kind of keep it all in is like a teapot, right? It tries, it, it's like tries to escape. So know when that you need some assistance yourself. Um, like, you know, when you go on an airplane and the flight assistant says, uh, put your oxygen mask on yourself before yep. you do your child. If and you do that because you're not going to be any good to your child if you can't breathe and and you're um, unconscious. So in you know how that works with these parenting type situations, you can't really give away that of which you don't possess, and that came from the child parent relationship therapy model too. If you are having a hard time regulating your emotions and, and some of these things that the kids are doing are triggering big emotions in you, give yourself permission to be um, human and um, really recognize that feeling. Don't try to stuff it. I'm like a 
a, um, a beach ball underneath the water in the pool, but allow it um, to kind of be, okay, I'm, I'm realizing this is an issue for me and then get some support yourself and whatever that may look like. It may look like seeking out therapy. It may look like doing your own work by um, reading self-help books or um, going to a life coach or reaching out to a trusted family or friend, but know when to put that oxygen mask on yourself because you and your child deserves it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we have the Happy Mama Conference and Retreat every year is to teach self-care and how important and how um, powerful it can be in your family for you to take good care of yourself and and be really um, solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Happy Mama Retreat, that just that's therapeutic even just listening to the title. <laughs> Imagine how much fun it is. And relieving when you have kids with ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, it can really um, not only take a toll on your emotional health, but a lot of times people neglect their physical um, health as well because it's so taxing. So to take that break and connect with other people that are experiencing similar things is so powerful. Yeah, that's really good stuff. I feel like I'm talking your ear off. I'm only on number three right now, so I'll try try Not a problem. It's all great stuff. Great stuff. So the next one is have a good fun-to-work ratio. Sometimes life can leave us feeling so very stressed that um, it's all work, work, work. I know a lot of of kids. I used to work as a school counselor, and one thing that really would break my heart sometimes is when kids will work all day at school really hard – and then after school, they'd come home and they would work all evening on homework. And um, yes. it just felt like it was just all work, 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 work. And as soon as they get up, it's like, oh, you got to do this because we didn't get this done last night. It really can leave that child with the what's the point and a burnt out feeling. And mm-hmm. that's not healthy for anyone. It's really a quality of life thing, I think. Yeah, and I think... In the case of our kids with ADHD and learning disabilities, it's really important if schoolwork is taking over their life outside of school that you ask for accommodations to um, kind of mitigate that a bit. You know, you can ask for reduced assignments um, because really our kids with special needs should be doing the same amount of time of homework as their neurotypical peers, not the same volume of homework. Um, And so, you know, kids like my son have slow processing speed. They have, he has dysgraphia, so really difficult with writing. And he's also extremely distractible. And when you put that together, it can take him three to four times as long easily to do the same work as one of his peers without those disabilities. And so, you know, it's really important that school doesn't ruin your family life and doesn't rob your child of their childhood. You know, that balance is really important. And a lot of parents of kids with ADHD feel like that their child has to do the same work that the other students are doing, that it's not fair if they don't, but really it's not fair for them to do 
more work and for it to take over because then they're being punished for having a disability. So a lot of parents don't realize you can ask for an accommodation and get a reduced volume of work and they can still show that they're learning, um, that they have the concepts, they have the knowledge, you know, that's what homework is for. They can still do that and do every other problem on the math worksheet or do a three-page essay instead of a five-page essay. You know, it, it's a really, really valuable tool for our kids um, that a lot of parents don't know to ask for. So I just want to throw that in with, with your fun-to-work ratio because I think that's really important. We lose sight um, of how to make that balance when our kids have to work so much longer and harder to do the work. Yeah. Oh, you make such a good point. And um, when you say rob them of their childhood or um, really interrupt your family life, that's so true. And I'd like to even um, add something to that. It can really give them a distaste for education because it's really associated with such pain. Mm -hmm. And that word fair, um, it doesn't necessarily mean the same. You know, uh, right. it's definitely, if, if anything, it's not fair that the child has to spend their entire evening, you know, when they're supposed to be kind of recharging. And it makes them less effective in their tolerance levels the next day as well. Mm-hmm. I have a, an interview later on this evening with someone that is um, delving into differentiating between an IEP and a 504 accommodation plan. And I think sometimes there's a misconception um, that that plan is created and the parent just agrees to it. But and I know you're such an advocate for your um, children, and then you um, really you know inspire others to be that advocate. I know in the one um, uh, what to expect book that you wrote, really knowing that you have a voice, you have a huge voice, and you can let it be heard in those meetings and. Um, let them know what your child needs, because if you don't say it, it may be um, left undone. And then your child may not have that option to um, have reduced homework or be able to go out and play in the evening or be able to just to chill out. Exactly. Yeah, that's I a really that. important point. Mm-hmm. That book that you have with all those forms and little checklists, I love it. That's what to expect. Yeah, yeah. That's what my online course is based on, too. It just kind of walks everybody through it in a lot more detail. So it's good stuff. It's something that took me a long time to learn. You know, I had to figure all that out the hard way through a lot of trial by fire and struggle and um, exhaustion, you know, so... And it's not common sense stuff. It's stuff that you wouldn't know unless you well, like learned it from somebody or you like went through the trenches trying to find it out. So I exactly. love that you have a resource out there. Thank no, I recommended it to like a gazillion parents since I read it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're That's welcome. Awesome. Now the next one is 
spend present time with your child each day. And I know our lives are so, so busy, especially if it's a situation like we just discussed. But this could even look like 10 minutes and really child led, not, okay, you're going to come in here and then have your phone by your side, say, oh, I got to take this call. Just minimize distractions, spend time 10 minutes. It's great to do it individually, but that's not always, especially, I know, um, uh, single parents and working parents, it can be really a challenge to um, really make that happen. So, but even even just a couple of minutes can be a big, big deal. And that's just really being present with your children in their doing what whatever they choose at that time. And you're with them, just kind of being present with them, not asking them to do something or expecting them to do something. And of course, it's not representative of your whole day because there's certain expectations, lots of expectations in the rest of the day. But carve out at least 10 minutes each day to be with your child or children in a very present way without your TV, your phone, your iPad or any of that. Yeah, I love that. Put away your electronics for a little while and really be present. Um, yeah, what that ad- connects children and parents big time. Yeah. What advice would you give for families whose child um, may really prefer a lot of alone time? You know, my son is 14 now, and we have, you know, he started to refuse family dinners. He didn't want to eat with other people um, mm-hmm. and really likes to spend a lot of time by himself. He still yeah. um, likes to hang out with friends and stuff, but at home, he seems to really retreat. And I think that it's kind of a self-preservation move on his part. That's his comfort space. And if he spends time with us, he might get questioned or, um, you know, pushed in some way that he would prefer not to be. Yeah. And I think when you said self-preservation, I think you're um, spot on with that. I think it is a way to kind of recharge his batteries. And I'm really kind of applying this um, to kind of that, scale of introvert and extrovert that introverted um, people with or people with introverted tendencies they um, can spend time with other people but they need to recharge their batteries um, alone and make sure they have that and if they don't have that time and that space to be alone and recharge their batteries then it makes that social time really hard and vice versa have you ever known anybody that they didn't even want to go on a vacation without a gazillion of their friends on the vacation with them. Um, So I think that self-preservation is really big. And if you pull back on that too much, especially if your child um, is showing that they need that and um, with autism um, spectrum disorder and ADHD, that can be a very real part of it. If you pull Mm -hmm. back too much, then you're going to notice that they get out of balance because they're kind of going where they need to be. But know that you, and I'm pulling this from that conversation with Dr. Temple Grandin, you don't want them to be in there um, too long. You want to make sure that they do have some family time and family interaction. So give them lots of heads up and say, hey, at um, at 7 o'clock, we're going to do this for 15 minutes. And have them, you know, have that predicted time. And um, it can really, really help. Also, she talks about... 
um, the importance of giving the child a sense of purpose. So not making the goal necessarily just social time, but saying, hey, we really need your help in this area. And then kind of just make it something that you you know your child would enjoy and make it short enough to where it doesn't discharge their batteries, you know, those internal batteries. Yeah, good idea. And I think, too, maybe setting some expectations ahead of time to say, like, for instance, my son doesn't like a lot of questions, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to know what's going on with him, how his day was, all these things, you know, and um, that is outside of his comfort zone. And so I think, you know, setting that expectation that, hey, we're going to spend 15 minutes together, we're going to do this particular activity or task or just sit and talk and um, but I'm not going to ask you any questions you know to try to make him more comfortable about it ahead of time sounds like it would be beneficial to you yes yes definitely definitely you sound like such an attentive and just a connected parent I love your personality and your parenting style oh thanks I try I try hard (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the next one is the unconditional acceptance. And I got this out of that whole parent, um, How to Become a Terrific Parent, Even If You Didn't Have One, by Deborah Wesselman, book two. I'm getting ready to have her on my podcast. I'm so excited. Awesome. But that I love you no matter what, and I'm here for you. Now, when kids have difficult behaviors, it can really kind of frazzle you, and it can really leave you on edge. But you don't want to send the message to the child that, hey, I only love you when you're good or I'm only going to be accepting of you when you do this for me. You want it to be unconditional. I love you no matter what, even when things are hard. And that in itself makes some of these behaviors diminish. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in situations, I work with a lot of um, adoptees and um, the kids that um, maybe didn't have a healthy attachment in those early years, that one can make life feel unbearable. So it's really important for I love you no matter what. And the next one's a fun one. I really have, hadn't been doing this, and I just read it in the Childhood Disrupted book by Donna. I can't pronounce her last name. It's an amazing book. Um, she talks about those adverse childhood experiences. I'm going to have her on my podcast, too. I'm excited. But she talks about the 20-second hug. Now, I know many of these kids... Um, they may not like that. And if they don't like it, you want to be respectful and not force it on them. So this is one of those things that if it's a good thing, it's a good thing. But if you sense that, okay, this isn't helping, then don't do it. But how this works is that 20-second hug, really that's just the right amount of time, and that's a pretty long time, to connect on that visceral level and to feel that rhythm of heartbeats and that just um, I'm I'm connected to you feeling. But again, don't do it if your child doesn't like it. Some kids don't even like to be touched. So you want to be very respectful and respect their space. Right. And on the flip side of that, some kids who need proprioceptive input, they're sensory yes. seekers, the hug is actually really great tool to help them to calm and, and feel their kind of sense of where they are in space so you know we have kids on both ends of that spectrum of not wanting to be touched all the way to really needing that 
deep pressure input. So that 20 second hug can be valuable in more than one way to some of our kids. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I had an occupational therapist on my Parenting in the Rain podcast, Lindsay Bill, and she talked about that. You're so right. I totally forgot about that. When I worked in the school, I used to have this little guy that would just come running up the hallway to me every morning, give me the biggest bear hug. And I, at first, I thought he was just being affectionate, which he was, you know, he was amazing. But that proprioceptive input um, really helped him to calm down, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd hug him back. <laughs> but it's, it's just, a, it was good all around, good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next one, I feel like we've covered already that give your child permission to be human. I don't know. Did you ever watch that the magic school bus when your kids were little or, or at any a time? A little bit, yeah. Bristle? She says, like, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but um, allow your children or uh, make mistakes, get messy. So if if you just kind of let them live, um, kind of loosen up and, and let them kind of have fun and be a kid. And don't be critical and, and too um, too structured to where they can't even enjoy life. Let them be human and give them the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from mistakes can be so valuable. Definitely, definitely. And I think that goes along with not expecting perfection. Yes. You know, a lot of times we, again, we, we were programmed growing up to have certain expectations of how kids behave and and what a parent is and does. And um, I think a lot of us fall into that trap of expecting our kids to do what we need and want them to do all the time. And, you know, nobody's perfect. We're not perfect either. And I think it's, it's really, really powerful to show our kids that to kind of let them off the hook of, wanting perfection or thinking perfection is the ideal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just watched a little um, YouTube video with Brene Brown and Oprah Winfrey um, just yesterday on her Brene Brown's Living Brave series. And she talked about perfection and how it's really just a another way to not be vulnerable and let yourself be seen for what you have to offer. So um, I, I think that when we let our children make mistakes, but we also let them see us make mistakes and go mm-hmm. into problem-solving mode, it allows them to be vulnerable. And when you can be vulnerable, you can go so much further in this world. Sure. You can, yeah, rich, rich happiness. Now, this next one, um, uh, this is you know, one that we talked about a little bit already, too. Set, set the stage for healthy attachment. Now, healthy attachment is really in those early, early years. Um, and specifically, she has a piece in her book about, you know, how important this is, but how it can be a really tremendous challenge um, with parents that have kids with the difficult behaviors, you know, like if they have ADHD or an autism spectrum disorder or or some some kind of um, additional struggle. That, you know, if the child's impulsive, uncooperative, defiant, or like hyperactive, the parent can just feel frazzled and have lower tolerance levels. 
But Mm -hmm. when you take these extra efforts to set the stage for healthy attachment and basically all those things that we're saying in this whole um, podcast is helping that healthy attachment to occur, that it, it definitely can't cure ADHD, but it can alleviate many of the symptoms because the child feels safe and secure and um, kind of okay to be who they are without judgment. Right. You know, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of parents of kids with ADHD you talk about how their kids do really well at school, but when they come home, their behavior is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I think that really speaks to the fact that they're more comfortable at home. They know they can be human at home and make mistakes and they're still loved and accepted. Um, yeah. And so that, I think, shows that there is some healthy attachment that's happened there. Yes, yes. Even though on the surface it may look like a big pain, mm-hmm. it's really a good sign. I know even... Even sometimes when the kid gets in the car for car loop, they can just kind of let it loose. And then that's hard at parenting wise, too. But that's something that um, therapy can help with in a big way. I've seen many, many improvements. Um, But, yeah, I think they feel safer to kind of just uh, feel what they're feeling. And maybe during the day they're kind of stuffing it down because they know that it's not accepted or they may be judged. Or punished. Or in trouble. Mhm. Yeah. Okay, so the next one I'm on number 9 now the recognize healthy or recognize accomplishments even the small stuff. Now it's important to not um, confuse this with praise. When we praise our children, it's very externally, like, oh, good job, great job, you're doing great. And you, you really want that praise, or not the praise, that recognition to come from within. So external versus internal. And how you do this is be very um, specific on recognizing their accomplishment. I noticed that you did your homework tonight um, uh, and you finished it all by yourself. That really gives them that specific, they know what to repeat, but then that, oh, that was good, I did a good job, comes from within. And when it can come from within, then they're not seeking that external validation, like from then or into adulthood. And on a deeper level, it really kind of embeds that self-thought of I'm capable, I'm um, competent, I can do things that are difficult. Um, And it really lets them also know that, you know, that choice consequence cycle, that cause and effect cycle. When um, I choose to do this, then I choose to do that. And that could be just as simple as saying, I noticed very, Mm -hmm. very powerful stuff. Yeah, I use the phrase a lot with my son. I like the way you blank. And, you know, usually it's I, I make sure to point out things that we're working on. So when he's done a great job on a, a behavior goal that we've really been working on, I use that phrase a lot because it, it shows that he made that choice and he was in charge of that behavior himself um, yes. and gives him that internal validation, I think. Yes, yes, yes. That's such good stuff, too. And, you know, um, I learned this term in my um, hypnosis class, uh, learned limitations. 
And I'd never heard it before, but I swear I must talk about it every single day now. (laughs) But the learn limitations is we kind of learn what our limits are. And we learn that, hey, I can't do that or that's not for me. And then we don't go past that. Um, I When I first um, started, um, I actually, when I was um, became an EMDR therapist, I sought out comp- consultation for some of the more difficult cases that I have. And I really, you know, I believe in the power of metaphors, but my consultant told me about the elephant metaphor of like, if you have a baby elephant and this is really sad metaphor though, if you um, take a little rope and tie it to a stake in the ground, it will stay on that stake, which is so sad. And I can imagine, you know, elephants should be free, but for the sake of the metaphor, um, the uh, elephant pulls against that stake and then it realized, hey, I, I can't pull this stake out. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I'm not big enough. And really gets all those learned limitations. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward 20 years. I don't know how long elephants live to be, I think, pretty long. But that elephant has grown and big and strong. It will still stay confined to that um Mistake. Even though it's big enough and it's strong enough to pull against that now, um, it learned on an early age that, hey, that's not for me. I can't pull on this stake. So I think that, you know, prevention is worth um, a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We don't want to set these learned limitations with our kids by saying, hey, you can't do that. You can't do this because of you have ADHD or you have an autism spectrum disorder. We want them to be able to um, kind of experiment and and really kind of take chances and surpass those that idea of learning limitations, but also um, give them that unspoken permission to kind of pull on any learn limitations that may be already in place. And they may have learned that at school when, you know, they they try their hardest. One thing, this is a little bit of a pet peeve for me. I don't know if pet peeve is the right word, but with the award ceremonies at school. Mm -hmm. A lot of the kids, oh my goodness, they work so hard. They're working their hardest and no matter how hard they work, they don't get an award and it is heartbreaking. And so they have that learned limitation that uh, being recognized and an award isn't for me. That's not something I can do. So it kind of um, defeats that motivation, but really kind of teach your children to pull on that stake and whatever learn limitations that they have, you know, really kind of question those and, and do it anyway. And that can help them to go further in life and be happier. Yeah. And I think learned limitations can turn into learned helplessness yes. and, and really become a very challenging um, way of thinking for them that really holds them back. And, you know, it's really hard to balance. And it took me a long time because I at first always said, well, he has ADHD, he can't do that the way you want him to do it. Or, you know, I used it as an excuse. And I taught him that when he was little and first diagnosed, it took a really long time to undo it. And I still fall back into that trap every now and then. um, Because I see how much he struggles when he's pushing against some of those limitations. But it really is, I think, an important tool for us to teach our kids that they do need to challenge 
those barriers and try to overcome them um, as much as possible. And I think to to teach them ways to work around their weaknesses, their symptoms, in order to have those accomplishments. You know, we had an OT, an occupational therapist once, who said to me that all of these kids should have the same exact childhood experiences that any neurotypical child gets. We just have to craft a way for them to be able to participate and be successful in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. That's so, me. so very true. And let them feel that. And I think to kind of just kind of follow up on what you said, you know, a lot of times they they learn. And, and I think parents are and you know, just people in general they are well-meaning when they say it, but um, a lot of times they could say, oh, he is ADHD or mm. she is ADHD. That's my and pet peeve. Yes, and they're not ADHD. They, they may have, have ADHD, but they are a human being. They are so much more than ADHD. But it, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to kind of uh, um, really get in that mindset. But that little shift in language can make such a difference. It really can. It really can. And when I, you know, kind of stumbled upon that same thing to stop saying I have an ADHD child or my child is ADHD or is autistic, um, that mindset change for me really put me in a better place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it, it really allows you to focus. Uh, one of the things that in that child-parent relationship therapy is focus on the donut, not the whole Um, Focus on your child's strengths, not their weaknesses. Of course, Mm -hmm. you do need to attend to the weaknesses, but put the main um, part of your energy into what is strong about them, what's good about them. When you can do that, you put that energy into that, and they feel that, and they kind of learn that as their own approach to life. It can make a big difference. Absolutely. I used to bring donuts like at that session for the parents. But I realized they wouldn't eat them. And then after they left, I'd be eating donuts. <laughs> I was trying to make it, make it like healthier, but I mean, not healthier, I'm more tangible. But uh, I was like, I got to stop this. I'm not bringing any more donuts <laughs> for these parents because I'm just the one eating them. Um, okay, so the last one is my favorite, favorite one. And it's smile at first sight. And I learned this a long time ago. Um, but I, I think of it in terms of when your child gets in the car or uh, from um, school and they're in car loop or they walk home and you see them or, or I get off the bus and you think, oh, what homework do you have tonight? This, this and this. And then you look at them and you give that expression of, OK, we got work to do. They really connect with that expression that you give them or in the morning when you first see them. Um, say, oh, you need to do this, this, and this, and this. You want to at least take 10 seconds. I mean, that's not much at all, ideally more, but 10 seconds to let your whole body feel excited that, hey, I am happy to see you and I love you. And, you know, whatever in this moment is is um, going on, there's nothing more important than you. 
When you could do that, that is so, so huge. It connects us on a, a visceral level as well. I know Dr. Siegel um, talks about mirror neurons. Um, he talked about that in the Mindful Therapist book, but how what we project our children and project with anybody, you know how you can feel energy about people um, mm-hmm. when you're connecting with them. Um, if, if you're like, uh, always on edge and you're not really seeing me you're just seeing my homework or you're just seeing to see what the teacher wrote in my notebook about whether I got a smiley face or a frowny face or um, let me see that referral that you got today um, that's not nearly as important as that that 10 seconds like I love you and I'm, I'm going to support you through this Yeah, and that's something that I have actually started doing with my son, and I didn't really realize that it was a parenting approach or, you know, anything like that. I just, you know, back to the fact that he likes to have a lot of alone time. So when he comes out of his room to get a snack or whatever, I always make sure to make eye contact with him and smile at him. And he started doing the same thing back to me. So when I pick him up in the car line and he comes walking towards the car, the first thing he does is flash me a big smile. And Mm. it's really awesome. And Oh, my gosh, it's going to make me cry. (laughs) It's just... I, I never realized until you said it how impactful that little bitty thing that we just started doing because, you know, we love each other, um, mm-hmm. how impactful that really can be, how much, you know, that's sending him a lot of messages in one little bitty smile. Um, I often do it after school because I never know... Um, how he's going to emerge from school, what his mood's going to be, how he's doing that day. And I know that there's going to be homework we're going to have to deal with. And so, you know, I started it, especially at that time, that's probably when I started doing it. But then when he started giving it back to me, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just kind of a thing because he doesn't like to be questioned. He doesn't necessarily like to have long conversations and, um, Mm -hmm. So that's that one little connection that we can make without really invading his comfort zone. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. I totally lost my train. I thought I just totally got it. Story. That's beautiful. And I love that um, That you really kind of pointed out that you, you don't know what's going to come up that evening. But in that moment, there's nothing more important than that connection. And that makes it all easier. It makes it all worth it, too. Yeah, it kind of says to him when he walks out of school that it doesn't matter what happened at school. He's coming into a safe place. He's, you know, um, that unconditional love. Like, I love mm -hmm. you no matter what. No matter what you didn't turn in, no matter what the teacher said to you or another kid did. I'm here for you and we're, we're going to do this thing together. I know I read this book and I know I've talked about it and I'm like talking so long. So I only have a couple more things that I think's really kind of connected to this. Um, in the childhood disruptive book, they talk about adverse childhood experiences. And one of the very first questions on there is really looking at, um, was did you have an overly critical parent um, that can actually cause harm for the child for years together 
uh, or for years, years and years, um, both on an emotional level, but also on a physical level. It can settle itself in the body as like autoimmune deficiency and so many other things. So really being critical of your children, um, it's not one of those things, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like that's very rare that that's the case or maybe some exceptions, but, um, Really being supportive of your children is where it's at. Now, that's not to be confused with allowing your child to make mistakes because we want to allow our kids to just be normal and make the mistakes and learn from them like, okay, you forgot to um, do your science project until or you didn't do your science project until like a week before and you got a poor grade on it. That's different than being overly critically parent. That science project example really can, you know, give them a sense of um, that cycle between um, uh, consequences and and um, or their actions and consequences. We want to want them to get that sense of resiliency and grit, but we also want to let them know that hey, I believe in you. I'm here for you no matter what. And I just had a lady, um, I recorded an episode. I haven't aired it yet for the Play Therapy Community podcast on maternal um, health and postpartum depression, but also someone on the infant mental, infant toddler mental health. And they talk about the, and I know this is a misconception because when my child was little, I actually believed in part of it for one time was you know it's good to let your child cry it out but it's not good to let your child cry it out because it really kind of sends that message that hey I'm not here for you and at that stage in life they really need you for survival so that messes with their trust and their feeling of worthiness and all kinds of stuff so you know um, if that is something that you did, it, it's not about blaming us about, hey, I um, I know better and I can do better now. But um, that's something that just has recently, I don't know if it recently came out in research, but I'm hearing more about it. The importance of going to your baby in the middle of the night um, and really giving that big smile and that I love you, even if it's at two in the morning and you're super tired. But mm-hmm. that too, you may need to know when to put your oxygen mask on too so you know reach out for support if you have it so that you can actually be present with your child too right and when you talked about being critical I think it's really important to think about perceived criticism as well because a lot of individuals with ADHD um, have kind of a very sensitive Um, perception of criticism and rejection. And so they will perceive that when it's not the case at all, very often. Um, You know why that is? Um, That because there's like, I have a colleague that um, one of his treatment approaches to helping people with an autism spectrum disorder is to treat it as if it were a trauma. Um, because there are many um, of the same elements uh, that constantly get redirected um, during the day that off task, that um, that um, not being accepted in social groups or maybe bullying, things like that are mm-hmm. traumatic events. And when we have traumas, we become hyper vigilant and we have like a part of our brain called the amygdala that really kind of scans out for anything that could be potentially harmful like that event that happened to us so if there's any if we got that sore spot of 
I'm not good enough or I'm not competent or I can't do this. If a comment even touches on that bruise, then they react. When as parents, it may be, no, I didn't mean that at all. That's not at all what I meant, but that's how they react. So it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's important as a parent just to say, uh, um, I can see that upsets you and I want you to know I didn't mean to upset you. However, I, you know, I would like to do this. And that kind of recalibrates that amygdala and helps them realize that, hey, that whatever they felt in that moment that embedded that cognition, that thought of I'm not competent, I'm not good enough, I'm um, less than, that's not true for this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I just read an article the other day that talked about how having these sort of disorders, ADHD, autism, um, bipolar, anxiety, how that really is trauma. Um, And it linked to PTSD and how you don't have to be a veteran and and, um, have experienced war or combat to have PTSD. And I have talked for a long time now about having PTSD myself in certain situations related to my child um, because a lot of this is traumatic. It's traumatic for them to go to school and hear all these messages and never measure up and um, never get that award. And um, I think that's really important. And most people have um, a very limited perception or definition of what trauma is. You know, for me, in fourth grade, my son started having school avoidance and school refusal. And mm-hmm. one day out of the blue, when I pulled up to the curb and dropped him off for school, as I started pulling away and the other five cars in my group started pulling away, he ran right out in the middle of the car, screaming bloody murder and chasing my car. Um wow. And so still, to this day, he's in eighth grade now, so this has been almost five years ago that it started, I still get this physical anxiety every day when I pull away from the curb and I hesitate and I look in the mirror and watch and make sure he's going into the building. And he hasn't chased my car you know, again, since then, because that was super scary. And we had a long talk about how, you know, you don't run out into moving cars. And, um, but, you know, still after that, there was a lot of refusal to get out of the car some days, there was, you know, just a lot that we went through consistently for years. And it has really kind of programmed my thoughts and my physical anxiety reaction in those instances, every day at the curb, it still raises a little bit and it gets better over time, you know, now that he's doing better with that, um, hasn't refused to get out of the car in a very long time. Although there have been days that he refused to even get in the car and go but you know, that instance right there at the curb at drop off has not happened in probably a year and a half or two years and I still get that physical um, knot in my stomach and the tingle and you know that hyper vigilance to watch and see what's going to happen 
So it's very real. It's very real for our kids. It's very real for us as their parents. You know, it's not just the kid that has ADHD or autism. The whole family really um, is greatly impacted um, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I did a show on um, or on one of my episodes on parenting in the rain on when a parent has anxiety. And when you say that hey, just being at the curb triggers you, that's your body trying to prepare you for that happening again. Mm-hmm. But And it is a symptom of uh, PTSD. It doesn't mean that you have PTSD like on a diagnosable version. Right. But it really means that your body's trying to prepare you for if that happens again. But you don't have to live with that um, permanently. Like some people think, well, I just have anxiety. I got to learn how to deal with it. There's a type of therapy that um, I perform and many, 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 many clients that I've had that have um, went healed from traumas. And when I talk about trauma, there's a capital T trauma that may look like combat war, being in a car accident or domestic violence. But there's that lowercase trauma um, that, you know, the for our kids, it may be that somebody um, excluded them or somebody laughed at them while they were on stage at a school play. Or for you, I think that was a capital T trauma. But when you can desensitize that and reprocess that, when I say reprocess, you look at what thought felt true at the time and when you think about that now, and it may be um, he's not safe or um, I, um, no, I'm, uh, I can't handle this. My child is, I think that'd be more spot on. I can't handle this. My child is potentially going to get, you know, hit by a car. Mm-hmm. When you can reprocess that through EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, it can help you to be more in the now and not um, having your amygdala um, and really that whole alarm system of your brain responding to a potential situation that occurred a long time ago. It helps you to be more present and not live in, in like those really tough past experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing EMDR come up more and more frequently um, as of late. So I think that there's more, either more people are becoming aware of it or there's more evidence backing it or something. But it's definitely um, come into my radar several times as of late. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's so, so good. I use it with all kids, um, but with my, my children that I, I use it with all of my clients, not just kids, but with my uh, clients that have an autism spectrum disorder or um, ADHD, um, I use the EMDR with them, mindfulness and play therapy. Very effective um, combination there. Awesome. And parent strategies, lots of parent consultation. I usually work with the child for 60 minutes and then chat with the parent for 30 minutes over the phone in between sessions, um, usually after their kid goes to bed. But that's for the first few weeks until things start to lighten up. And then and then those phone calls kind of wean away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Parent training is really valuable. Um, for families of kids with ADHD and autism, there's many studies that have shown um, that play that. Um, oh, you just said play therapy, and it got on my mind. Parent training mm-hmm. um, is a very valuable treatment for a child's ADHD. Um, 
And the side effect of that is that the parents stress less and have more confidence in their parenting as well. But um, there's a lot of evidence that parent training is every bit as important as behavior therapy for the child and medication and so forth. So um, that's, you know, and, and that's something that they can focus on for a while and then take with them, you know, they're going to use it forever once they learn the right strategies um, that are most helpful. Yes, 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 yes. And then they can go on to use those strategies with their own children at some point because we mm-hmm. use our childhood experiences as our blueprint of how to parent ourselves when we become that parent. Such a good point. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I think you and I could go on all day and talk about this stuff together but we do definitely need to wrap up so if you want to let the listeners know where they can find you online how they can get a hold with of you how they could work with you um all of that good stuff yes yes thank you so much for letting me do that i have um a podcast i'm just finishing up with my parenting part of it there's 50 episodes actually 51 if you include the intro that penny's on two times um because i love you penny you're amazing (laughs) but um that's called parenting in the rain and i have a closed facebook group that i would love to have you join and also i have um now i'm shifting over at the time of this recording into play therapy community podcast and that one's geared towards um professionals um such as child therapists and behavior analysts occupational therapists um teachers and um other like uh people that help families and children um just really help help the kids and um help improve their quality of life and everything that goes with that so that's called play therapy community podcast there's a closed facebook group for that as well as there's a page called Jackie Flynn host of play therapy community podcast and I would love to have you um, like that page also I have www.playtherapycommunity.com and then I have my private practice website www.counselinginbrevard.com and I have a twitter um, at Jackie Flynn RPT for registered play therapist and I have a Pinterest, but I never pin anything. I just don't have time. And Instagram seems so foreign to me. I haven't even got into that. No. But <laughs> thank yeah, you. we only have so much time for all of those yes. things. It's hard as social media grows to be present in, in all those places. But you mm-hmm. certainly offer a lot already. And I will put all of these... Um, different places that you can find Jackie online in the show notes, which are at parentingadhdandautism.com. And we will link up and give you a very easy way to um, reach out to Jackie and benefit from her expertise and her approach for parenting kids with ADHD and or autism. So I want to thank you again for being here, Jackie. I love talking to you. I love your approach and how comforting you are. Um, And so I hope you'll come back and be on the podcast again another time. Absolutely. And you too. Super. Well, thanks again. (laughs) And we'll see you on the next episode.
All right. Thank you, Penny. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.